Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BIOREPORT. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. While the class of immunotherapies known as checkpoint inhibitors has brought a promising new approach to treating cancer, the development of resistance to these therapies limits the number of patients they benefit. Portage Biotech is building a set of platform technologies and a pipeline of immuno-oncology therapeutic candidates to address this problem. We spoke to Ian Walters, CEO of Portage, about the problem of resistance the company's pipeline of candidates, and its portfolio-based business model. Ian, thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm uh, very pleased to be here today and to share a little bit more information about my company, Portage Biotech. Well, we're going to talk about Portage, its pipeline of immuno-oncology therapies, and its business model. Prior to Portage, you were at BMS and involved in the development of some of the first immunotherapies known as checkpoint inhibitors. Perhaps we can begin with this general approach. What happens in cancer and how do these therapies work? Sure. So for many years, you're familiar, when we were treating cancer, we would give people toxic chemicals. They would wreak havoc throughout the body with the hopes that you'd get small amounts to your cancer and that could slow the growth. And uh, some people often complain that the treatment is worse than the disease. You know, at uh, the early days at BMS, um, we had made the shift to try to boost an immune system to fight cancer. And the reason that I don't have cancer today, even though my body develops cancer cells every day, is because my immune system um, finds those cells, it sees them, and then it clears them. Uh, So the idea being... What if we can get everyone's immune system to find the cancer cells and kill them? So we started using some, I would say, rather 
broad and nonspecific approaches to boost the immune system. And when uh, the immune system fires uh, at the cancer, if it can uh, recognize a cancer cell over a healthy cell, it can clear that cell and it can continue to do that for typically the remainder of people's lives. And it really was a shift in how we approach cancer. And we're for the first time, you know, we're really seeing patients with very long response after stopping treatment. One of the drugs that we were developing at BMS was zipilimumab. Um, that's a checkpoint drug. And uh, we saw the patients that were in response after one year were still in response after 10 years and uh, are effectively cured. And that really um, created a paradigm shift in, in the treatment of cancer. And many, many companies now are developing treatments in this area. Well, these therapies have been effective for some patients. They don't benefit a large portion of cancer patients with a given condition. Why is that? Yeah, so there's a variety of reasons. So let's start with the two tumor types that are the most sensitive to immunotherapy, non-small cell lung cancer and skin cancers. Um, it's not surprising that these are responsive to immune treatments because they're also two of the highly, uh, the most highly mutated tumor types. So when we're outside, we're exposed to radiation um, that causes mutations in our skin cells. Um, and uh, skin cancer typically has a lot, a lot of mutations. So it's very easy for the immune system to recognize what's a cancer cell and what's a healthy cell. Same thing with lung cancers. You're breathing in toxins and things from the environment. Um, lung cancers tend to be one of the also highly mutated tumor types. It's very easy for the immune system to recognize. Um, when you look at other tumor types, let's say pancreatic tumors, those are very low mutated. And it's not that easy for the immune system to recognize what's cancer and what's a healthy pancreatic cell. So um, they don't typically respond. So that's one of the key features that's needed for these treatments to work, right? We need to be able to understand and the immune system needs to be able to recognize what's a healthy cell and what's a cancer cell. Uh, so that's one of the key reasons a lot of tumor types don't respond, even in skin cancers or lung cancers. If they have a low level of mutations, and this is something that we can test uh, in patients, these typically don't respond. So that's one of some of the reason, you know, the ways that we're looking to augment the existing drugs is by helping the immune system recognize uh, what's a healthy cell and what's a cancer cell. There's also the notion that... Um, these drugs really relieve something what we call the break signal. So a cancer cell can express a certain protein on the surface of its cell that tells the immune system, hey, I'm a good cell, you can leave me alone, uh, and it prevents the immune system from clearing it. Uh, so these treatments can remove those signals, and which enables the immune system to, to uh, attack the cancer. Now, not all tumors express those markers, and, and that's another area of focus of how we increase the expression of these uh, markers on the surface of the cancer cells to allow the immune system to recognize it and clear it. Uh, so there's a variety of different biologic mechanisms that contribute to response, and why typically with the existing drugs we're seeing as, as a single agent somewhere between 10 and 30% in different tumor types respond. Sometimes in the addition of one or more agents together, you can get more patients to respond. 
Uh, on the converse, there's, you know, 70% of patients that are not responding. And that's the big area of focus of what we're doing at Portage. How well understood is resistance with regard to immunotherapies? Yeah, so like like I mentioned previously, you know, in the early days, uh, you know, we were really excited about these treatments and we were hopeful that we would figure out ways that everybody could respond. Unfortunately, there are uh, a variety of reasons that these either develop resistance over time or never respond in the, in the first place to these drugs. And this is something that we started learning about 10 years ago when we first started testing these drugs. And me, as well as members of my team, were part of that group at BMS in the early days doing these testings. So we took a lot of these learnings uh, with us and has really been kind of our marching orders to identify new products that could overcome these resistance, whether it's the mechanism we talked about, which is immune recognition, how to make sure the immune system can recognize the cancer, or how you can take a, an existing tumor that doesn't have any immune um, response already in the tumor and to try to make that tumor hot or what they call immunologically hot, which means we get immune cells to get into the tumor. And uh, there's also... Uh, the microenvironment around the tumor. So again, there's all kinds of ways that tumors avoid uh, killing by these these methods. One of them is they create sort of a hostile environment for the immune system. They have uh, a variety of different negative cells. We call them like the army that are protecting the tumor. And, and we are also looking at strategies how to take out that army so that the immune cells can get in and do their job and clear the tumor. Portash has a, a number of platform technologies. I, I wanted to focus on your invariant natural killer T-cell agonist. These provide a way to activate both the adaptive and innate immune systems in the fight against cancer. Can you explain what this is and, and how it works? Sure. So we're going to have to get into some hardcore immunology in order to explain this. So, uh, you know, the immune system has a variety of different ways that it protects the body. Uh, so it has an innate uh, uh, immune pathway, and that's sort of like the first line of defense. Those are the immune cells that sit in tissues and that guard uh, your body against various different um, abnormalities, whether that's uh, infections, cancers, and other things. And, um, you know, for a long time, people didn't even care too much about that uh, that arm of the immune system because we didn't have really good tools to kind of stimulate it. Um, the invariant natural killer T cell, I'm going to call it INKT for short, um, is a type of cell that uh, is able to stimulate that arm of the immune system. And to, just to give you an example of how that works in real life, um, the way we understand these things typically is we take a mouse and then we remove the cell and we see what happens. So if you take out uh, uh, an animal, the ability to make these type of cells, and you give it a, a cancer exposure, those animals will develop cancer, while an intact animal that has these cells will be able to clear the cancer challenge. So that gives you a sense. These cells sit in tissue. They are recognizing cancer cells as they are, enter the animal, and they're able to clear them. And if you don't have those cells you will not succeed in that, and the, and the animal will develop a, a tumor. 
So that's, that's immune surveillance. That's the innate part of the immune system. So that's only one bit on the mechanism of action. The second bit is the adaptive immune system. And that's, again, um, and in today's day and age, a lot of people are learning about the immune system with respect to COVID. And you probably have heard people talk about T-cell responses to COVID. Well, the uh, adaptive immune system is designed to ramp up when there is a specific abnormality, whether that be cancer or a virus. And these, this particular cell and our products are able to ramp up that adaptive response and create a broad immune response that includes T cells and B cells and antibodies, uh, all to fight the cancer as well. So you get really two different plans of attack to try to improve the situation for cancer patients. You have two versions of your INK T cell agonist in development. Uh, this is port two and port three. My understanding is they differ in the way they're packaged and delivered. Can you explain the difference between these two experimental therapies? Sure. So um, in order to improve these particular drugs based on their chemistry, how they circulate the body, where they go, um, we have decided that we want to package them. And there's two different ways that we've come up with to package and deliver them that give them the ideal properties for a therapeutic. So port two is an INKT agonist in a nanoparticle. I mean, excuse me, in a liposome. Very similar to, uh, you know, how they deliver a COVID vaccine, right? A liposome. And what that does is that uh, helps direct these things to the tumor uh, over the healthy tissue. And it gives them the ability to circulate longer without uh, being naturally broken down by the body. So you you can give them less frequently. So that is um, port two. Now, port three is part of a collaboration we have with a few immunologists in Europe um, who did some work about a nanoparticle formulation. And that's another kind of encasement around the drug. And what they studied there, and this enabled us to get a grant from the EU to study this particular asset, was that when you put uh, our INKT agonist with a antigen, which is a you know, a part of a tumor, like to use the analogy in COVID, they talk about the COVID vaccines have a spike protein, right? Here we're using a part of the tumor plus our agonist in a nanoparticle. And when we see when you put those two things together, they're five times more potent than giving the two products individually, right? So we get a a, a real interesting synergy by combining those two aspects in one product. Also, uh, you know, locates to the tumor and and helps bring these drugs exactly to where they need to be in order to start battling your cancer. So we've come up with these two kind of creative ways, um, and we've developed some IP. We've gotten support from the EU and 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 grants and things to develop these two different formulations uh, in order to see if we can find better ways to treating different cancers. And were you in development on these and, and what's known about their safety and efficacy to date? Mm-hmm. Well, we announced earlier this year in April that we started uh, our trial with port three in, in the EU. And uh, it's early days. We haven't really reported any um, of the human data yet. And we're just about to start our trial with port two also in the UK. 
So um, I can't give you a whole lot of information about safety and efficacy in humans. Uh, that being said, um, you know, we have seen really dramatic efficacy of these agents in the typical mouse models. And one of the things that we're really good at, um, having worked in this area, you know, since the very early days, is knowing which animal models are most likely going to translate to what you might see in humans. So we've seen incredible activity in, in the mouse models of these two. And there's been other kind of agents that um, are attempting to do a similar thing with this cell population um, done by other companies, which have shown you know, remarkable safety in humans. So I think it's our expectation uh, obviously, we need to do the studies and collect the data that there's a good probability that these will be well tolerated. And we'll have to see if our novel way of delivering them and the formulations and the chemistry will lead to, um, you know, a really interesting efficacy signal in humans as we see in the mouse models. So you're going to have to stay tuned, you know, and come back to me in six months to, to two years when we have more data with these assets to get the full picture. These have the potential to be broad acting therapies. How do you go about selecting and prioritizing the indications you're going to pursue? Yeah, so this is a little bit of an art when in drug development, right? Because there's a lot of features and factors that you have to consider to try to understand uh, how a drug works and where it might work and what's the best opportunity from a medical, scientific, and business perspective to pursue. Now, um, with these therapies, one, some of the data that we have demonstrated in animals, which really helped us decide how to do this in, in human testing, was their ability to work in conjunction with those same drugs that I developed when I was at BMS. So there's a class of immunotherapy. It's the widest used product right now in oncology called an anti-PD-1 inhibitor. That's a checkpoint drug. Um, that's one of the drugs that me and my colleagues helped develop when we were at BMS. And that drug is doing extremely well. That class of drugs has been approved for something like 18 different tumor types and is currently selling over $20 billion a year when you add up the sales of the different companies developing uh, these drugs. And, and just about every major pharma company has one of them approved. So what we've shown is we can, um, in animals that don't respond to that drug, we work as a single agent, right? So we could certainly go uh, in, in conditions where patients have failed uh, those particular drugs, and that's part of our clinical strategy. Um, and we're doing that in, in the context of lung cancer and skin cancer. Again, you know, some of the areas that we know are typically responsive to these drugs. And then we also see when you give the combination of our INKT plus these PD-1 antibodies that we can restore sensitivity to those. And there's really good scientific data on why that's the case, how we change the surface of the cancer cell, how we impact the immune cells. So that's another area of our clinical trial where we're looking at our drug alone versus these PD-1 drugs alone versus the combination of the two to see if we could enhance the activity. So, you know, there was pretty good scientific evidence on, on where to go and what indications 
based on the use of these PD-1 agents in different tumor types. And that's really what we started with, which was the basis of the science and the medicine and what we know about the current treatment, and then extrapolating where we think our drug could best fit in, where the competition is, and where we could be, you know, leaders in the in the area. Portage is not a traditional discovery and development company. It's using a portfolio approach to acquire assets and develop them to license or sell with the goal of maximizing potential returns while eliminating a lot of overhead biotech companies face. What does Portage look for in the assets it acquires? Yeah, so, um, you know, we've gone out with specific scientific hypotheses that we want to solve. And that work really started uh, back when we were at BMS and when we were looking, you know, uh, not only did I work on the drug development side and overseeing the clinical trials at BMS, I also worked on the business side as well and uh, was looking externally to BMS at assets to bring in. So I started looking in this space, you know, many, many years ago and trying to understand the scientific areas that were most appealing. And some of those tend to be what we call in the white space, right? So in areas that no one's currently looking at, right? Because we don't want to be the 10th person looking at one particular biology. We want to be kind of the pioneers and the first people uh, who have access to a specific technology if we think it has value in the treatment of, of cancer patients. So we really looked... Um, quite broadly for assets in this space that could meet those criteria, that could be first in class or best in class, that represent some of the areas that are underdeveloped, where we could be in our own lane um, as far as uh, the development and so on. And, uh, you know, part of that uh, really um, involves a deep, deep understanding of the entire landscape of what all the companies, big and small, are doing and how we can find niche areas where we can be successful. So yes, uh, you know we've been very targeted in, in how we've brought in products and platforms that address you know key unmet needs in this space. And we've also been kind of intelligent in the way we develop them. So I think you know it's pretty typical uh, for new companies being started in the biotech space for them to raise a lot of capital to hire a ton of scientists to open up a big office in Cambridge or San Francisco, San Diego, um, raise more money and build this tremendous organization with the hopes of trying to get products into the clinic that can help cancer patients. You know, we've, we've kind of stripped that down to the bare essentials, you know, of what, what's really needed uh, based on our, you know, over 20 year experience in this space. Um, where we don't need to hire a ton of scientists because we partner with lead scientists around the world. Uh, we keep our overhead down. We know the critical experiments. We've been on the business committees of major pharma companies who could acquire these products. And we really know what good looks like. We've said no to hundreds of companies in this space because they didn't have the right experiments or they didn't have the right information. Uh, so we really know how to streamline our efforts to try to do the experiments that are most valuable. So our investors really who put up the money don't spend a lot of money in infrastructure and benefits and things like that. The money goes directly to value creation R&D. 
And that's been our approach. And we've seen really good reception uh, out there with either academic groups or small biotechs that really don't have this experience in-house and are very eager to partner with us to try to help them uh, develop their products and get them to these value creation points as quickly as possible. So I, I'm wondering if you can expand on that a bit. You, you know, tell me how you you leverage your resources and, and minimize your overhead through the the structure you've created. Yeah. So you know, we, we're mostly a virtual organization, and um, we're able to split people resources across a lot of different projects simultaneously. So just to give you an example, we have one CFO who provides the financial oversight to a lot of different um, development programs uh, that we oversee. So you don't need to have six CFOs. Um, You know, we don't necessarily, in most cases, have our own laboratories. That's a lot of infrastructure cost, right? We leverage... um, exclusive relationships with different academic groups, with contract research groups to conduct our experiments so we can flex up or down um, as needed without necessarily needing to take on fixed costs. Um, So we do things like this uh, in order to, like I said, streamline the effect. And I think the the real streamlining comes from knowing what experiments to do when. Right? I think a lot of scientists in this area get sort of paralyzed in this paradox of, well, we need more data in order to move forward. And they keep doing more and more experiments, and uh, each experiment yields 10 new questions and, and 10 new experiments. And you can get into this um, loop where you're constantly spending money doing more experiments and not necessarily uh, adding significant value to your program. And the value really is getting it into the right human trial and knowing what experiments are needed to do that. And at some point you have to say enough is enough. We're putting it into the clinical trials and we're going to, you know, move this into the most relevant species, which is human testing. So really having that insight and those experience creates probably the biggest, um, I would say cost savings uh, going forward, and that we're not doing glorified science experiments that don't really change your your path forward. And, and how far do you typically take a, an asset in development? Yeah, so look, from a business perspective, and we didn't go over my background, it's a little bit unusual, you know, I'm, I'm trained both in this medicine as a doctor and the science as a scientist, and I also got my business degree. So I kind of bridge all three disciplines. And from a business perspective, you have to be prepared as a group to take it all the way. Because as soon as you are um, in a situation where you don't have a path forward, you know, that's when other companies will step in and take advantage. So I, I will give you an example, and this I think will kind of illustrate my point. So, you know, ideally, we'd like to take a drug into human testing, show the safety and the efficacy, and then partner a license with a big pharma company, right? And that's kind of our standard paradigm uh, for doing this. But if a pharma company doesn't believe that you're going to take something forward, you're not going to be able to negotiate the best deal, 
So you always have to be prepared to take things forward to registration, to commercial launch, and so on. So one of the first companies that we helped start and got um, going was a company called Biohaven. They're a Connecticut-based company. They are now at an $8 billion market cap, and they have one product approved that they're selling. And even as a small company, they're competing against big pharma and doing better in the sales and marketing of their agent. But that was a company where you would think, all right, well, once you have an approvable drug, you're going to partner with a big pharma company because a small biotech is not likely going to go out and sell a product. Their product is approved for migraines in, in, a, in a, a medical field like that where you need a big sales force and it's hard to commercialize. Um, and in fact, you know, they did it and they did it well. And their valuation has appreciated dramatically as a result of that and not necessarily relying on a partner and uh, another company to come in and to do that for them. So our strategy, as far as how far we develop, is we're prepared to go all the way, even commercially market and sell a drug. Uh, but our, we're going to entertain offers from pharma partners all on the way. One of our value propositions as a company is that you know our group has been around long enough that we know everybody that's working in this space. There's really a, a, a set of target companies that are most likely the ones to be interested in our products. And we have ongoing relationships with them. We meet with them on a regular basis to kind of share our progress, to get ideas of interest, to understand what data they need to see to want to have these drugs in their portfolio. So we have a very clear sense of that. And then it's just a matter of executing and generating the data. Uh, so that's really our approach and that we hope that uh, that'll attract early interest from pharma companies. In fact, one of our, our companies has you know, collaboration agreements with the two biggest players in this space, Bristol-Myers and Merck, and we have joint development teams with them so that, you know, they get early access to see our data. Well, how do you think you might think differently about creating value under your business model than you would if you were a more traditional biotech? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, most traditional biotechs are – single asset, single platform companies, right? So they sort of live and breathe by a single program. Uh, you know, for an investor, that could be good or bad. If you have a big portfolio, that's not so bad. If, a, you know, a particular product or company uh, works and you get big upside or it doesn't work and you lose everything, right? Uh, our portfolio approach is a little bit different than that. Since we're not beholden to just a single product, we have a whole pipeline of, of programs. We are constantly doing the business exercise of trying to understand where um, are, is the best use of our resources and how do we prioritize the programs and projects that are going to give us the biggest return on our investment. And overall, that kind of smooths out the bumps in the stock. It sort of gives you multiple choices and multiple chances to succeed. In fact, in the next, you know, 18 to 24 months, I think we have 15 different um, trials that are going to be yielding data in that time frame. Any one of those uh, could be a huge success and reproduce the success that we had with the company Biohaven. So that's really the, the main difference with our model. And that gives our investors really a significant uh, chance for upside, regardless of one particular technology. 
succeeding or not. Ian Walters, CEO of Portage Biotech. Ian, thanks so much for your time today. It's my pleasure, and I'm happy to kind of circle back with you when we have more data to share about these exciting new agents. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.